Good morning. Last time I felt badly that I was here because I spoke to this side and not to this side. And later I was really convicted that I wasn't being very balanced. But if I stand here, I feel like I can't be seen. <laughs> so I'm really not sure what we're going to do today. Uh, but we'll work out something. I do want to uh, give you notice that we've worked out a deal with the audio-visual team because we don't have a clicker to move from slide to slide on a PowerPoint. So I'm just going to do this. And it'll go to the next slide. So I don't want you to think I'm having a nervous breakdown <laughs> or something or any kind of issues like that. Uh, my name is Bill Job, and it's a delight for my wife Kitty and I to be back here. We feel like we have deep roots intertwined with Oak Ridge uh, since I was born here. But we did uh, community Bible studies uh, 40 years ago, <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. Wow. I just made me feel old. <laughs> so um, we, we're just delighted to be here. What I wanted to do this morning was to share some of the things that I feel like the Lord had taught me. And in thinking about it just a moment ago, I realized that you guys really intimidate me. Do you know why? Because I, there's not a Bible verse I can find that you don't already know about. <laughs> There, I just feel like there's nothing I can bring to you in terms of teaching the scriptures that you don't already know. And uh, I, honestly, it's intimidating. So what I'm going to do is to try to link some scriptures together, maybe in a way that you haven't seen it linked together, and just kind of reveal what I was unprepared for when I went overseas. So Kitty and I have lived in China for 32 years. The Lord sent us over there and uh, we're back here, can't get a visa to get back in, and the political situation being what it is, I don't think I'll ever get back over there. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Hmm. So, Father, we, uh, we just settle down and just want, we kind of want to just settle into these seats, but we really want to settle into you. We ask you to calm our hearts and our minds, our spirits, and we ask you to do what you want to this morning in our lives. We know that you have a sense of destiny for each one of us. You know what you've been working on, what you've been trying to teach us. You know how you've been caring for each one of our individual hearts, all of our specific individual needs. We know you're the best father in the world. And we just want to relax in that reality that we're in the presence of the best father in the world. We want to have a little family time with you. So come and show us, teach us, encourage us, bless us, stretch us, rebuke us. Whatever you want to do, we give you complete permission. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, that felt dangerous. <laughs> uh, I was spending time with the Lord one time when he asked a question. And the question was, yeah, that's the question. <laughs> we'll start with slide one. He asked me the question, are you teachable? And I honestly felt a little insulted because I have a degree in philosophy. I had a lot of books. I have a degree in seminary. My first response to him was, have you not seen my library? Like, I've got a lot of books. 
And he immediately responded and said, oh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not asking, are you willing to learn again what you already know? I want to know, are you willing to learn something you do not yet know? And I thought, whoa, those are very different (laughs) ideas. And that would be the logical meaning of being teachable. Am I willing to learn something I do not yet know? And I said, okay, I'm going out on a limb and saying, yeah, I want to be that kind of guy. And then I immediately thought, I bet he's saying I'm in the wrong group. You know how we have the body of Christ kind of chopped up into different teams, different groups? And honestly, when I went to seminary for three years, I spent half of the time learning why we're better than the other guys and how to do battle with them and you know, why we're right and they're wrong. And so I immediately had this little panicky feeling that maybe I'm in the wrong group, and that's what he's saying. That's what he wants to know if I'm teachable. And his response was, no, he's not talking about the groups at all. He just wants me to realize that every group had a beginning for a particular reason, that there was something in history that was out of balance, and it gave birth to them bringing this up to the surface, but often they didn't keep in balance over the decades, and so then something else got forgotten and had to be brought up. So what he was saying to me is that every group out there most likely has something that I'm missing, a little bit that I don't have, and he just wants to know, am I willing to learn that little bit from them? Not to change sides, just to fill in the blanks on my side. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And then he he said, you will be learning from few people you've laughed at in the past. (laughs) And I found that that has actually been true in my life. So I could stand here today and fairly, fairly confidently say, I've learned more in the past five years about the kingdom than I did in the previous 45 years. And so I'm on this like trajectory of understanding how the kingdom intersects with the world that we're in in ways that books just don't teach you. And uh, it's really been very exciting for me. I forgot to raise my hand. There we go. We'll go one more time. (laughs) Maybe I should just leave it up for a minute. So I'd like to link together Ephesians 3, Psalm 23, and the book of Job to answer the question, why is this so hard? There are times when it just feels like, if God's on our side, why is this so hard? Why, shouldn't it, why isn't it easier? It just seems like it should be easier than it is. And he showed me a thread of reality that helped me balance, understand that, that I'd like to share with you. I apparently need glasses. It's hard for me to read this, this, the words I put on the back screen. So... Uh, Uh, Before we get into it, I need to share with you, and did I share this before, the the difference between a two-component and a three-component worldview? Does that sound familiar? Okay, in a two-component worldview, you have two parts. One part is God, and the other part is man. And we have the opportunity and kind of responsibility to try to figure out how the world works based on the interaction of these two parts. So you have God and you have man. If something goes wrong, we're pretty sure it's not God. So guess whose fault it is? It's essentially always our fault. And so all of our life kind of shapes this target on our back to figure out, well, how did you mess up? 
It's your fault. We all know it's your fault. We just don't know how you did it. So let's figure out how you did it. Then we can get you fixed and things will be, be good again. So that's a two-component worldview. This is the actual worldview we inherit from the European historical intellectual background. The Enlightenment basically gave us this. And so they kind of said, if you can't see something that doesn't really exist, just worry on about the stuff that you can see. So the alternative is a three-component worldview. And in this worldview, you have God, you have man, and you also have an actual enemy. Now, we all know you have an enemy, but what I didn't know was that I had an enemy when I went overseas. Uh, over here, he's kind of snuck under the radar. He, he manifests in ways that we accept as kind of normal. We don't see it as a particular attack. Things like discouragement or suicide or uh, despair or divorce. or a whole, I'm just saying a whole bunch of things happen here. Anger, rage, road rage. That's actually a demonic manifestation. You know? But we categorize it as something else. We don't think of it as, as the enemy. So in this worldview... You put them all together, and you find out how to approach life based on the three of those. Okay, very good. Moving on, let's start with Psalm 23, and I want to explain that for years I saw this psalm with what I would call a two-component lens. With a two-component lens, I'm seeing everything as an issue of God and man. Third-component things, things dealing with the enemy, I actually don't see. When I read scripture, I didn't actually see him there because I didn't know what to do with it, so I just skimmed over it and moved on to something I knew what to do with. And I'm sure that's not your problem. That was my problem. Um, but it actually became fascinating when the Lord gave me the lens to see the third component verses. So, for instance, Psalm 23, on a scale of peaceful to terrorized, where do we usually put Psalm 23? Peaceful. On a scale of one to two, I mean one to ten to be like a two or so or three or something like that. How many think it's a two? Oh, we we got to get some interaction here. Okay, how many think it's a one? Like super peaceful. It, yeah, super peaceful. Yeah, this is the one that we put on the baby's bedroom wall. You know, they got a picture of the shepherd holding a lamb. You know, we think of it as being really, really peaceful. I would make the point that that's because there's one verse in the psalm we don't see. We don't actually register it, or we would never think of it as being peaceful. Now, we have an immediate recollection of, oh, yeah, the valley of the shadow of death. That doesn't sound very good, but that's not the verse I'm talking about. So here we go. Let's go into the psalm. This is called a portrait psalm, and it means that the first line is the portrait, is, a, is the, the uh, title of a picture that it paints in the rest of the psalm. So we'll do this as a little picture. So the Lord is my shepherd. It literally says, Roi Yahweh lo ahasar. So I just wanted to impress you with my Hebrew. I don't know how that stuck with me for 40 years, but it did. It's the only four words I know in <laughs> Hebrew. <laughs> so the Lord, my shepherd, and it says, no needs. I actually have no needs because the Lord is my shepherd. It's a beautiful picture, a title to this picture that it paints. So there we go. This is actually from a, a world-renowned artist. Kind of cute, isn't it? So doesn't that, doesn't that look like a nice little uh, lamb up there getting into a situation with no needs? Okay, next one. He leads me beside still waters. See the water? 
and he restores my soul. So that is a restored sheep. I mean, this is how it starts off. He fixes the sheep. The sheep is doing great by the time you get to the first, through the first couple of verses. He's happy. He is restored. And that's the way the Lord will always work with us. He will first restore us before he actually takes us places. Then he leads us, guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So now we begin a journey with this good shepherd of ours. It's apparently something he has on his agenda. We didn't know about it. We kind of get caught by surprise. But we find ourselves in the world in a, on a journey that he's leading us on. Even though I walk through the, shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you see the little red eyes over there? That's a little hint that something's trouble is coming. You know. And in, I'm not going to worry because he's with me and his rod and his staff, they comfort me. So you can see the rod or the staff clonking the little bad thing over in the corner. <laughs> now we're about to hit the third verse, or the third component verse that we'd ever see. I want you to think about this just for a second. From the point of view of the writer of the psalm, David, he actually knows what the enemy of a lamb feels like in his hands. This is the guy who's wrestled a lamb, a little sheep, out, a little lamb, baby, out of a lion's mouth physically and killed the lion. He's gotten it rescued from bears, it looks like, multiple times. Now, this guy is really, really courageous, David is. I mean, I would have written it off, right? The text says that the lion came, got the lamb, took it off, and he chased it down and grabbed and rescued the lamb and killed the lion. And I would have said, okay, you can lose one or two. That'll be okay. I am not raised chasing down after a lion. But he chased down the lion and killed it. So when he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, he's thinking he's the lamb in the story, and he knows very well what an enemy of a lamb is like. So he's describing a scene here where if you think of like a picnic area, the shepherd brought good food for the lamb, put it on the blanket, invited the lamb over, and he's looking over here, and eight feet is a lion off to the side. And over here is a bear, and they're circling. They apparently can't get on. They can't come closer than that, but they can come close. On a scale of one to ten, peaceful, where did, how do you feel about peaceful? Where, where are we now? Are we like maybe eight, seven, six? What do you think? We can usually lose the peaceful thing in this about three minutes worth of explanation of what this verse says. Before we went to China, I went to the Knoxville Zoo, took my kids, and I remember Christy was maybe three, four years old, five years old, and we went to the tiger thing, and there's a big old thing of glass. And that tiger just, just looked right at her the whole time. Scared me to death. And I'm still thinking of that when I see this. So, okay, what is David actually saying? He's saying that this supposed good shepherd, now he is a good shepherd, but he gets to define things in a different way than we thought. I thought a good shepherd would keep me out of trouble. But apparently this good shepherd we have goes right into trouble. He puts us right smack dab in the middle of a very tense situation where we are, in fact, intentionally <laughs> surrounded by enemies. Hmm. Then, he does anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. This is probably a reference to the 
oil that they used to heal lambs with. If the lamb got wounded, they would part the wool. A good shepherd would spend time most every day, put the lamb up on his lap, search over his body to see if he had any scratches and hurts, and he'd put oil on the hurt. And there's no end to the oil he has, so I think he understands if I wander off the blanket and I get smacked a little bit, I can come back and he will take care of me, and there's no limit to how much care he has for me. It's actually a very safe place to be if I obey. If I disobey, it gets to be problematic because <laughs> the context is, is difficult. But then we get back on the journey, and surely goodness and, and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I simply follow him back on this journey, and I get to go home with him. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But do you see the impact of that one verse? A third component verse, it's about an actual enemy. If we bring it up and, and lift that out and take a good look at it, it's, the whole psalm changes significantly. Now, I think we land on the same place of safety we should land on, but the journey part of it is not what I used to think it was. I would never put that psalm on my kid's bedroom. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question. What is the clearest verse in all of Scripture that defines the purpose of the church? Would anybody want to volunteer a couple of verses or suggestions or ideas? That's, that's awkward, isn't it? I should not ask anybody to do that. So let me tell you what he showed me that was a, maybe the second, third component verse that I'd never seen before in years of studying Scripture. And it's this one, chapter 3, verse 8. So to me who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make see, all see what is the fellowship of the mystery from which the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul, this is one of the longest verses in Scripture. I think it's like 12 verses in English, but it's one verse in Greek. It just goes and goes and goes. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord from whom we have, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Let's look at a little bit more narrower part of that. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here we have the words eternal, purpose, church, things like that that sort of lean in that direction of I think we have the definition of the purpose of the church right in front of us. One more time with a little more focus. The verse says that the intent is that we would manifest the manifold wisdom of God. So manifold means multicolored. God's got wisdom to deal with everything, relationships, money, work, all that kind of stuff, all kinds of wisdom. And we now, the church, what are we to do with that wisdom? 
Are we to study it? Teach it? Learn it? It's not actually what it says. What it says is we're to put it on display. We're to manifest that wisdom. We're to bring it out. Let people see it in action. Right? So put it right out there. That it might be made known by whom? By the church. This is one of the specific assignments of the church. Now, here's where the problem is. This is a third component issue because of such, I didn't see it when I read it for years. So, 100% of the time I've heard pastors teach on this verse, right here they jump to angels in heaven. So here we're going to manifest to the angels what God's wisdom is like. That would be nice if we didn't have chapter 6 to the book of Ephesians, which says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, ta-da, principalities and powers in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 6, it gives four names. Here we get two of them. These are the bad guys. So tell me again what the purpose of the church is. The eternal purpose of the church is to manifest the wisdom of God to the bad guys. Right? I didn't know that was the purpose of the church. I thought God was going to take care of the bad guys and I just get to be happy. We just take that one slide out of Psalm 23 that has to do with being surrounded by the enemies and everything is great. Now, by the way, if you take Psalm 23 and this verse and link them together, do you know what you get? Now you get the reason that God puts you in a place where you're surrounded by enemies. Oh, he intends us to show them something. He intends us to rub it in their nose. He intends us to not be afraid of them, but for them to be afraid of us. That's the plan. Aren't you glad that's the plan? So honestly, when I went overseas, I did not have this in mind. It started coming into focus when one of my employees came and said, Hey, boss, can you help me? I said, Sure, what's, what's the problem? Well, I was awakened in the middle of the night with a set of hands on my throat, choking me to death but there was no person there. So I quickly go back through my seminary education, and I think, did we have a class on this? <laughs> and I think, I don't think we had a class on this. <laughs> oh, no, I'm in trouble. And so going out on a limb, I said, okay, let me just pray. And then I just tried something. I don't remember what I said. I told her, if this happens again, you tell it to leave in Jesus' name. You know, that kind of brilliant sort of effort. And then another girl came, and another girl came, and six of them came with the same story in that year. And I found out, oh, that government, they're living in a place where there's a whole bunch of these things up there. And they are, in fact, trying to kill my employees. Hmm, in a two-component worldview, what do you do with something like that? The answer is, you blame yourself. It's not God's fault. It's got to be your fault. You only got two choices. God's never at fault. It's only you. It's always you. So why are you so stupid? Why, are you, why don't you know what to do? Why are you unprepared? Oh, it's got to be my fault. Well, actually, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. 
So he heaps shame on you or on us and, and that, all that sense of the, it's the, his number one most common statement, I think, is the statement of minimalization. Whatever it is you need, you don't have enough of it. And when we hear that and we agree with it, we stop. Do you remember the story I said of the guy that, my finance guy that said, if we don't get $350,000 in 14 days, we've got to shut the company down? Like the next day or two, I heard another voice that said, this company is going to go down and it's all your fault. That was so believable. That was the enemy. If I didn't know how to recognize and reject that voice, what would I have done? I would have given up and it would have gone bankrupt and I would have been booted out of China and my ministry would have been over that, that week. I would have quit. The enemy loves to get you to quit because he whispers to you, there is no choice. You don't have enough of whatever you need. You're not spiritual enough. You're not smart enough. You're not tall enough. You're not rich enough. You're not good looking enough. Whatever it is, you don't have enough. Very, very common statement. So we've got to learn this is the nature of the game we're in. He put us in front of those guys to show them that his ways are right. His ways are right. His wisdom is better. This came home to me one time when uh, we had taken in a little one-month-old girl that had been abandoned in China, and we were fostering her for two years. And I got to thinking, why was she abandoned? And I just kind of, I'm guessing now, I don't know this for sure, but I believe the enemy had operatives in our city who spoke to that little mother when she saw that the Baby had a severe cleft palate and cleft lip. The enemy said, that baby's defective. You don't want it. You need to get rid of that. And the mother did. Put her in a bush, abandoned her by the, by the ferry station. Was found, turned in, and she landed in our house. Now, with cleft palate kids, you have to feed them every hour and a half for the first six months of their life because they can't suck on a bottle. They can't draw the vacuum, so you have to drip feed them every hour and a half or they'll, a lot of times they'll die. And so Kitty was just marvelous at doing this, but I got to thinking seven days a week, no sleep, that's kind of hard. Why don't I be the hero and do one day a week? <laughs> and so I took it from Friday evening to Saturday evening. I said, I'm, I'm on duty. You can take a break. And so I was up 2.30 in the morning, I think, and feeding her. And then this whole story came into my mind, and I thought, that, that evil spirit that wanted this kid to die, I wonder if I can dial him up. So I picked that little girl up, and I held her up in the air, and I commanded that spirit to pay attention. And I said, you wanted this child to die, and I am telling you, it will be loved. It will be cared for. You lose, we win this time. And I thought of this first. We're to manifest the wisdom of God to the principalities, powers, authorities in the heavens place. <laughs> when I started realizing the world I lived in over there was actually populated by a lot of these creatures, I was kind of frightened. As I learned more about it, you know what happened? I think they became frightened of me. Have you ever noticed that passage that is really interesting where 
the disciples are trying to cast a spirit out of somebody, and the spirit talks back to them. And so they say something like, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom, how was, how was they afraid? In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And they weren't actually understanding the authority they needed to have to do this, and so they couldn't pull it off. The, the Spirit talks back to them. The Spirit says, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but who do you think you are? And then they got beat up. That phrase, I've heard of Paul, <laughs> you know what that means? Paul had a reputation in the demonic realm. How cool is that? <laughs> that is super cool. Wouldn't you like to have that over the demonic activity in this city? So we simply just have to understand how this thing works, and then they will be afraid of us because we have nothing to be afraid of when we properly understand who we are, who they are, what battles have already been won, how do we incorporate those realities in our daily lives. So now a little bit about the book of Job. Let me just read this for us. This is toward the end. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt, for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept him, lest I deal with you, according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, if you want to know, like, the end of a story, go to the tail end of the book and read what, how it ends. This is a fascinating statement to me, because my interpretation of it is, God is really unhappy with Job's three friends, with what they said. He's actually pretty furious with them. Huh. Well, most of the book is them talking. <laughs> if we put the chapters up, well, let's do it one more time. So my wrath, yeah, there we go. That's fine. So each one of these little rectangles represents one of the chapters in the book. We now know God is really angry with the stuff that these guys said to Job. So I'm thinking, why do we study all of that so much then? Then you'll find a bunch of stuff that's written from the counselors that we think is gospel. But God at the end of the book says, no, I don't like what they said at all. So let's take those chapters out, see if we can visually remove them, and see what we have left. What well, got a lot more manageable, didn't it? <laughs> so the next three are about uh, from Elihu, and I don't want to take time talking about him, but he's not the three counselors. He has something else to say. But then God speaks for two chapters, and he says uh, Things that he notices about 16 different aspects, they're all kind of related to creation, and they're four to seven verses long. Okay, Job, if you know so much, do you know where I keep the storms, the, the snow and the rain and the hail? 
Uh, if you're so smart, do you know where I have, where I see the mountain goats give birth, where no man sees, you know? So he's kind of rubbing it into Job. 16 little different topics, four to seven verses each. Then Job speaks, essentially he says, I think I blew it. <laughs> I, I want to take back what I said, Lord. I am really sorry about this. And then God speaks again. And this time he talks about one animal. Two names, one probably a name, one a description, and it's 43 verses long. So before the longest passage is seven verses, now this is 43 verses. Which one do you think is the most important? Probably the long one, okay? So in this, he speaks of this animal, behemoth. We've heard all kinds of, we try to lay our understanding of what this animal was on the text. And so we, we hear hippopotamus, alligator, all kinds of things. My take on it is that it's an animal form that Job, Job, Job I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name, <laughs> that Job understood, even though we don't understand, it seemed to make perfect sense to him. Okay? So... One characteristic is he is the first of the ways of God. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. It says things like, you will not put a hook in its mouth and take it home and make it a pet for your kids. This one is not ever going to be conquered. That's problematic because man is supposed to conquer every animal form. Great whales, elephants, we can, you know... We can conquer them all by design. He goes, no, actually not this one. You won't do it to this one. Next. A flame goes out of its mouth. I think there's three passages that describes it as, <laughs> okay, guys, get ready, a fire-breathing dragon. It's actually what it says. Its heart, his heart is as hard as stone, totally un. Repentant, unable to repent is the implication. On earth, there is nothing like him. So you have an animal that's an individual species that doesn't have any duplicates. Every other animal form will have descendants, and there will be many like him. This animal, nope, there's nothing like him. He beholds every high thing, and then look at this. He is king over all the children of pride. Beginning to get a sense of what this description is about. So if God is referring to an animal form that Job was familiar with that depicted, this is my take on it, his enemy, is it possible that God was explaining to Job what had happened to him? You see, the count, you know why the counselors made God furious? Do you see the connection yet? Because they counseled with a two-component worldview. But he had a third component problem. Do you think we might be doing that today? God hates that. Now, I'm not saying everything is the result of an enemy. But even if it's 20% of my struggles are the result of being in that third component arena, and I don't acknowledge it or I don't fight it correctly, I'm going to be taken out. I can't survive with taking 20% of the hits that come against me and not being able to win over those. It will eventually wear me down until I'm useless in the kingdom. 
So I've got to know when that is happening and what to do about it. We're out of time, so I can't tell you what to do about it much, <laughs> but here we go. There is really, really good news in the scriptures about what to do about it. It's very simple. Step one, this is from James. Just submit to God. Submit to God. Submit to God. Submit to God. Get that relationship good and tight. Spend time. Hang out with him. Be willing to do whatever he says. Just fall more and more in love with him. Just get that going. Build that up. Resist the devil. Just resist him. I actually think Job probably could have done some of this. They didn't have the teaching. He didn't know what to do. He didn't have a definition of what problem he was actually fighting. So he didn't even have the radar shooting in the right direction. But I do think it's possible that he could have. And what will happen? He will flee from you. He will. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and God, he will draw near to you. There's nothing in this message to be afraid of. That's not the intent. The intent is simply to explain to you that I lived many years overseas in a real tangible warfare arena, unprepared for it because I didn't have that third component lens to see the scripture with. So when the scripture is trying to teach me something, I wasn't actually picking it up. So if possible, I just want to share that lens with people. Ask the Lord if it's true or not and show you which verses you haven't seen that might appear more clear when you look at it that way. Let me finally just tell one, one final story. I may have told this already. I feel like I've got three stories and I repeat them 17 times every time I speak, so I apologize. Uh, but it's kind of a, a suitable ending to this. Uh, one of my dearest friends worked for me for years uh, in China, and he had six kids, Kitty? Yeah. And his older one, uh, next to the oldest one, was a boy, and I knew he was struggling with stuff when he was probably 15, 14, 15 years old. And I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wanted to do something to help him. And so I took him out to eat every Tuesday night for a couple of years. We had a love for the spiciest, hottest Sichuan dish you've ever seen. They don't even sell it in the U.S., I don't think. so. It's got that thing called electric spice in it. It's a little ball. If you pinch it with your teeth, you get oil out, and your lips will go numb. Oh, it's so good. And so we would go around town trying to find out where's the best restaurant to serve this one deal. And really, I was just trying to connect. I could tell he was struggling, but I didn't know how to help. Years go by. He comes back to the States, and he gets into a drug situation. He gets into selling drugs. And he gets into, he's arrested, and it doesn't look good for him. So he plans his suicide. So he's going to go to Mexico two weeks after his sister gets married, and he's going to commit suicide, and he's got it all worked out. Now, do you think those are original thoughts? Not a chance. He's receiving impressions that he owns as his own, and so he agrees to follow them, but he didn't probably originate those ideas. They were something from an enemy. So he had wandered off the blanket where the good shepherd had led us in the presence of our enemies and wandered into the enemy's camp.
started listening to them. Uh, another friend of mine, uh, interesting guy, Presbyterian elder who sent him, took himself to China, has been there for years, prays for me every single day. And he just felt like he did, was there for a prayer ministry. That's all he was supposed to do, just pray. Uh, I spent the night with him one time as a guest, and about 3 in the morning I heard a ruckus downstairs. I didn't have the courage to go find out what was going on because I thought I knew what was going on. He's giving the enemy what for is what we say, I think, right there. So he was, happened to be back in Texas, and he felt the prompting from the Lord, and uh, he, said, he found that guy in, ready to go to trial, but he was in a place where he could go speak to him. He was in some kind of a jail where he had visiting hours. And he got two other fellow Presbyterian elders to come with him, and he just called the guy up and said, hey, would you be willing to talk to me? And so the guy said, sure. So he goes over, and uh, the four of them are in a room. One of the other guys took notes about the whole thing and showed me his notes. It was a new experience for him. So the, the elder with the prayer ministry just said, son, do you, do you think there's any chance you have a demonic issue? He said, could be. Would you like to find out? I don't care. You give me permission to find out? Sure, do whatever you want. And so the elder demanded that any demon in this kid identify itself. Then the kid's voice changed to a new voice. And so he said, when did you enter? When the kid was 12. Why did you enter? How did you enter? He's all the kid was. I don't remember the specifics, but something like, oh, he was terrified. The, the other neighbor kids were picking on him. He was the only foreigner in town. And I came in through his fear. Okay, then he talked to the kid, and he says, I want you to break your agreement with fear. And the kid did, and then he speaks to the demon and said, you have no right to be here. You must leave in Jesus' name right now. And it left. Anybody else in there? Another voice. A third one, a fourth one, a fifth one, a sixth one. This is an interesting skill set to have. <laughs> Got rid of all of them. The kid went on to Dallas Seminary, graduated in counseling, is running a halfway house for people with addictions, doing great, absolutely doing great. I took him out to dinner for years trying to figure out how to unlock the problem. I didn't have a good enough third component lens to be thinking about that might be what it was. Or perhaps the kid could have gotten freedom years ahead of time. But at least he got freedom two weeks before his attempted suicide. So we live in a world where this is rare, but not unknown. When it is the problem, we need to fight it correctly. In order to do that, we've got to understand it. We have been equipped with every single thing we need to be totally victorious in this arena. Totally victorious. Usually we'll experience here as discouragement. Depression, sadness, all of those. You know, you got the fruit of the Spirit, and then you got the opposite. It's the opposite. Look for the signs that those things are sprouting up in your life. And then see, did this come from me or was it given to me as a little present from somebody I don't want around? And then just reject it. Just get rid of it. Just, you don't have to accept any of that stuff. You really don't. It wants you to think that you do, but you're totally empowered over that to reject everything that's not from the Spirit of God and receive everything that is from the Spirit of God. You'll be very, very healthy, and you'll find this. When this comes up, You'll know what to do and be able to do it. Isn't that good news? Lord, we talked for 45 minutes.
We hope, I hope, and we said what you wanted to say. And so we invite you now to kind of massage the message and help each one of us here to remember the specifics that you want us to remember and then to put aside everything else that gets in the way. And if there are issues like this in our life right now, we ask you to teach us. We agree to be teachable, to learn things that we do not yet know, and especially if it's in the category of this area that you revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.